You're listening to Denver Orbit. Shut up and listen. Live from MCA Denver. Welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Josh Madison. Now, I'm going to do all of the housekeeping up front here, and you'll see why. So, let's get this out of the way real quick. If you've got a song, story, or idea in your head, drop me a line at denverorbit at gmail.com. And if you like internet nonsense, check out the Instagram page. We're also on Facebook uh, under the name Denver Orbit. And uh, just go ahead and stick the landing here. Denver Orbit is produced and edited by me. Now, the reason I'm doing all of that up front today is today's episode is a little bit different, actually. A little while ago, Denver Orbit participated in a program called Shut Up and Listen over at MCA Denver. There was me and Mary McHugh. She's a resident advice columnist. And we sat in as hosts. And then Kelly Short and Queer told a story. Carl Christian Crumpholes narrated some of his comics. And then finally, we had music from Bonnie Weimer. There are a few audio issues, and I would describe my onstage hosting as sweaty. But all in all, it was a fun night. So I hope you enjoy, and we'll be back next week with a regular episode. Welcome! Welcome, friends, to Shut Up and Listen, the MCA's still in its infancy uh, brand new program celebrating the vibrant comedy and podcast scene in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Coming up, we have our podcast for tonight. It's Denver Orbit. Uh, The hosts for tonight are Colorado writer, artist, and parapsychological advice columnist, Mary McHugh. I'm so excited. And obviously, host and producer of Denver's finest podcast and all-around good guy, his words, not mine, Josh Madison. All right, so I am Josh Madison. That is... Mary McHugh. Uh, Mary is here because I didn't want to be up here alone. And that is the finest endorsement that I've had in a long time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I needed a co-host. Mary was uh, thankfully nice enough to step in. Mary is our resident advice columnist. So if you guys ever, you have some advice, you have problems, you do. You have problems, then you need to send your problems in to Mary. Mary will absolutely solve them for you. That is a legally binding agreement now. So, You uh, know, it's harder than you'd think to garner questions as an advice columnist. So I, I, you can... You can approach me after the show, ask me anything. Seriously. Yeah, it's true. She'll do that for you. It's $20 a question, just to get that out of the way right now. Tonight only, there's a special just for this audience. It's free. (laughs) Oh, thank God. How are we? I need gas money, though. Well, that's your problem, Josh. I can give you a ride to the corner, though. I can do that. (laughs) 
excellent. Actually, I can't because I locked my keys in the car. Oh, you did. That's not even a joke. It's not even a joke. So, <laughs> so uh, Denver Magazine, uh, Denver Magazine, no, Denver Orbit, actually, is an audio magazine that features voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. So we do a lot of different kinds of stories. We have interviews. We have fiction pieces. We've got poetry. Uh, a lot of just, uh, we've got an advice columnist because every good magazine needs an advice columnist. Um, and that's it. So you should listen when you get a chance. Uh, I think, though, should we cut to our first guest or do we have some amazing banter that we can keep shooting back and forth for another 20 minutes or so? I definitely think banter. Just ban kidding, guest, guest. Oh, guest. <laughs> oh, you fooled me. God. All right. Let's start with Kelly Short and Queer. Kelly Short and Queer is one of the co-founders of the Denver Zine Library, a volunteer-run nonprofit organization that boasts over 20,000 zines in the Lending Collection. He's also the exhibit, uh, exhibitor director, I can't even read my own handwriting, the exhibitor director of DINK, Denver's Comic and Art Expo, and that is actually coming up next weekend. So if you get a chance, you should go to that. It's pretty great. He's been publishing his zine series Short and Queer since the early 2000s, with, e with each issue focusing on a different theme through the lens of his queer and transgender identities. In addition to Denver Orbit, Kelly's live storytelling has also been featured on the Narrators and Mortified podcasts. Besides writing and storytelling, Kelly is also a drag artist performing under the name Olive de Bottom <laughs> and was crowned Honky Tonk Queen of the International Association of Gu Gay Square Dance Clubs in 2014. <laughs> So let's welcome to the stage, Kelly Short and Queer. All right, hello everyone. Um, so tonight I'm gonna be reading from one of my zines. Um, and so as Josh mentioned, I write zines about my queer and trans identities. Um, and this one uh, was a little bit of a different focus, but I did an interview with my grandfather. And I interviewed him for about two hours with my, grandma, my grandmother chiming in here and there. Um, so she shows up a little bit in this as well. Um, and it has been, they've both since passed, and it's this amazing reminder, and I have the audio, um, but just being able to share some of who he is with you is exciting. Um, so in this interview, I did a few different sections, so about him growing up, his being in the Army, his adult life, and our relationship. And so I'm going to invite Jacob to join me, and he is going to be reading my parts, and I'll be reading my grandfather and sometimes my grandmother when she chimes in. <laughs> so he starts out, well, one day when I was a teenager, I was classed as a bum, which you are. So my mother called me a bum because I used to go out with Freddie and Bernie Levy, and we'd crash a party, and I'd come home one, two in the morning, and my mother used to put ashtrays on the steps, so I would, <laughs> she knew. She knew when you came in. I'd come home and she'd scream at me. Anyway. Was that when you were a teenager? Yeah, that was in the 1930s, in the 30s. Never had more than, never had more than 15 cents or a dime in my pocket. We used to go, on date, go out on dates and the girls would pay. We never had any money. So anyway, one day while I was in Southern High, I was in 11th grade. I hated school, oh, I hated school. But I liked my English class because I liked the teacher. But for some reason or other, I could not, and here's the irony of the whole situation. He never actually finished thoughts, which I think I inherited from him. 
And here's the irony of the whole situation. At that stage, uh, at that stage of my life, I went to Southern High and I was forced to take a foreign language, so I took French. I took French and I enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed it, so I picked it up. I couldn't speak the language, but I picked up a lot that stayed in my brain. I don't know why. So one day, and every Friday we skipped school and we went to the Earl Theater. We saw Glenn Miller and Frank Sinatra and Benny Goodman, and we used to dance in the aisles. That was the best time in my life. So one day, going to the Earl, it wasn't open yet. So Freddie and I were waiting at the front of the theater. We are at the front of the theater waiting to go in, and our basketball coach was walking down the street, and we looked, and here, he's wearing a uniform. We said, Charlie, what are you doing in a uniform? Fellas, you wouldn't believe how great, and I'm talking 19, late 1939, early 40, Oh, the food, chicken every day, and turkey and steaks, unbelievable, you would love it. So we went to the theater and we came out. We're on Market Street, so Freddie said to me, would you be interested in joining the army? What the hell are we doing? We're not doing anything, maybe it'd be good. So I said, I don't think my mother, my father would love the idea, my mother won't let me go. So he said, you know what, 21st and Market is a recruiting station, let's take a walk. So we walked up and we went in. So Freddie said to them, we're not joining, we're too young, but we'd like to know some things about the service. So the guy said, I remember distinctly, the guy said, what service are you talking about? We both said, the Air Corps. So anyway, the seed was sown and we went home and I got, on my, father, got my father on my side and I said, Pop, Freddie and I want to join the Army. Oh, that's great, oh, that's wonderful. You're gonna have a hard time with your mother. Well, anyway, at that point I was 18 years old and I started to work on my mother for months. Mom, I want to go. I can't get a job. I'm not working. I don't have any money. Please. Anyway, in late October, she said, you really want to go? I said, there's no problem. There's no war. I said, it would be wonderful. <laughs> the wind-up is, she said, okay, you have my blessing. So we went to Freddie's mother and father. And of course, the father said, maybe it'll make a man out of him. The mother didn't want him to go. She said, what's he going to do there? To make a long story short, she said, okay. <laughs> we enlisted. We went up to the recruiting station and I said to the guy, I don't know if you remember us, we were here, here a year ago, and anyway, what service do you wanna go to? We wanna go to the Air Force. Okay, we'll sign you up. And there we, there we, and they were showing us pictures on the wall. This is where you'll be living and it's beautiful and the food is wonderful and the people will treat you. So we said okay, took the papers, took it home. My mother and father signed. In November, before Thanksgiving no 1940, they said okay, go to the train station and they're gonna take you up to your original place. We got into the train and it was so cold. The wind up is we wound up at Plattsburgh, New York. That's near the Canadian border. We wound up at Plattsburgh Barracks, New York. And the first week there, I kept saying to the sergeant, where do you keep the planes? And he says, what planes? The airplanes. What airplanes? You're in the goddamn infantry, son. <laughs> and here, we wanted to go into the Air Corps. And they put us into the infantry without us knowing. But anyway, <laughs> we were in Plattsburgh Barracks. There was no war. They found out I used to play basketball in South Philly, so they had a team. So they put me in the first division basketball team. I didn't play every game. I played every once in a while, and they would put me... My biggest mistake, years later, I thought of it, whenever I played in a game, I would take off my glasses because I didn't want to break my glasses. So I used to play without my glasses and I was always nervous that someone was going to hit me in the eye. <laughs> but anyway, 
that phased out. And they changed our thing from being regular infantry into ski troops. So I became a ski trooper. I had to carry my rifle and my backpack on my back and I learned how to ski. The fact that I was very muscular and energetic and everything, it only took me about two or three days before I learned how to balance my skis. And I learned how to ski. So a little while later, he told me this story, and Jake is going to be reading the part of my grandmother. <laughs> so anyway, one day I went to a dance. Gitty's not here, is she? I went to a dance. And you met Jeannie. And I met a girl named Jeannie. He always had a girlfriend wherever he went. She was a knockout. And I mean beautiful. The dance hall was, is to this day, the most famous dance hall in the world, I think. I'm not sure if it was called the Paramount. It was on the order, but it had a name. Anyhow, <laughs> they had a big band there, and they were dancing and talking. And the wind-up is, she said, I really shouldn't ask you this, but what religion are you? So I said, I'm Jewish. You're Jewish? So am I. Oh, my God. Wait till my mother hears about this. <laughs> anyway, to make a long story short, she said to me, please take me home. So I was never in England before. I don't know anything about London. So anyway, we get on a bus. I swear, Kelly, I thought we were driving to France. I thought the bus would never stop. It went all the way. So there's a place in London called Fox Hill. It would be like in Philadelphia going from here to Maniunk. It was unbelievable. The wind-up of the whole story, that was the night I took her home. Her sister was a movie actress in England. Gorgeous, oh my God. The mother was unbelievable. Real nice Jewish lady. And I think, how in the a family like this in England. So anyway, I became <laughs> friendly with them. And every weekend I had off, I would go to Jeannie's house. I'd bring them two oranges. They never saw an orange. Well, in England, they never saw it. So I brought them two oranges, a bag of, I don't know, peanuts or some kind of candy or something. But anyway, I would bring them a whole bag of stuff. Oh, I was like to them a king, you know? So many of the stories that he shared were pretty lighthearted, but he did give, uh, he did tell a few that gave me a picture of experience, of his experience in World War II. So anyway, my job was to blow up communication between the Germans, to wrap explosives around poles and blow them up. I didn't know one thing. I don't even know how they picked me for that because I had no experience with any explosives, but I figured that's my job, I'll do it. <laughs> so the wind up is, we're riding on this highway, and it was completely dark, except moon, the moon was shining so bright, it was almost like a flashlight. So the guy that was driving had no trouble staying on the road, so all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. They started firing machine guns and rockets and all kinds of bullets, and it was like total war. My driver was driving, got so scared for a moment, he turned the wheel and went down a gully, down a, what do you call it? So as we're going down, I knew damn well that we were gonna turn over and get killed, so like a schmuck, I thought I'd be a wise guy, so I stuck my foot out like this to try to stop the Jeep from turning over. <laughs> Instead, he cut the wheel at that minute the other way. It went right over my leg and broke my leg in I don't know how many places. And I'm screaming, oh! And they thought I got shot, and I said, I didn't get shot! And I said, you just went over my leg! <laughs> so anyway, he straightened out the car, somehow or another, got back on the highway, and we took off. He was driving, I don't know how fast, so I got back to where we came and I couldn't walk. My leg was busted, so the commander says, you're not gonna do us any good here, give me your rifle. I said, no, 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 you're not taking my rifle. I don't know when I'm gonna need it. So anyhow, he started to play. He kept sending me from place to place and kept looking. I said, what are you looking? Do you have a pair of what do you call it? 
no, I don't have nothing. They decided once and for all, they're gonna send me to the hospital. So that's when I got wounded. And they took me and they drove me to this airstrip. It's a strip. It wasn't a field or anything, just a strip. And they were gonna say, a C-47 is gonna come and pick you up and take you to the hospital. So I had my barracks bag. Kelly, in my barracks bag, I had a German Mauser gun, I had a wristwatch, an Italian pilot wristwatch, and all kinds of souvenirs. My thing was loaded. Anyway, so I'm laying on the ground with my barracks bag, and all of a sudden I hear, Ooh, and I look up and there's all these German planes coming over, so I couldn't get up and run, and there was nobody there to help me. And they came over, and it was not regular German, it was a German dive bomb, Stuka dive bombers. The thing with Stuka is they have a siren on there, and they were diving, and it was making this horrible siren noise, you know? And here I couldn't get up and run, and I laid there, and the bombs were all around me, and I lost my hearing. Luckily, I didn't know how, I didn't get any shrapnel on my body. And the next thing I knew, I opened my eyes. I was on a plane and the nurse was rubbing my hand. And here my nose was bleeding, my ears were bleeding, and I couldn't hear, and she's talking, and I kept saying, what, what? And the wind up of the whole, that's when my life turned inside out. They put me in a crazy house, and I kid you not, it was a real nut house. It was a cage. They didn't know what to do with me. They wrapped my leg and all the guys one guy was a fire engine, one guy was a policeman, one guy was a soldier. They were either putting it on or they were real, one or the other. They didn't know what to do with me. They didn't know what, they called me a psychoneurotic. That was the title they gave me. They took my body and put me in a tank like this and they kept submerging me in this tank of water for a whole week every day in ice water. And I was freezing and they wrapped me in sheets, you know, and then they put me in the water. Finally, that was, week was over and they put me in this cage area and the nurse would come out and they would talk to me like I'm nuts. And I would say, why are you, you know? And they would say, private, don't worry, private, you'll be all right. The wind up is, they didn't know what to do with me. So they decided to put me in a prisoner of war camp. I went to this prisoner of war camp. I had a thousand Germans and a thousand Italian prisoners. And so he went on to tell um, some stories about being in the camps where he talked about being afraid to tell some of the German prisoners that he was Jewish and his infamous story about fixing a broken record player for the Italian prisoners using a safety pin as a needle. <laughs> so he was kind of like MacGyver. Um, <laughs> and it was also that they could listen to Frank Sinatra's Night and Day. <laughs> and then he told me this story. So I got home and I got into a hospital and I became a star at the hospital. Even though I was screwed up in the head and my hearing was terrible, I met an Italian guy, terrific dancer. So he said, let's do a dance together. So we did. So somebody decided to have a show. So they put Tony and me in the show. I dressed as the girl and he was the guy and they gave us a big write-up. <laughs> so apparently I get my flair from the dramatic from him. <laughs> and we never talked about it being drag, but I'm like, oh, huh, okay. So a little bit later in the interview, um, I turned to talk about um, our relationship. So what else do you all remember when I was younger? What was I like? Well, you were very strange. <laughs> no, really. You were lovable, but very strange. You had a habit of not speaking to people. You wouldn't speak. You would go downstairs to Meyer, and he would talk to you and hold your hand and let's go for a walk and you would walk with him. And even in the swimming pool, you would get into the pool and you would lean against the wall and you would hold his hand and he just wouldn't talk. Another part of your life that I loved is when you and I would go to the racetrack and you would go around and pick up all the tickets, the losing tickets from the floor. Now I'll never forget one time you said to me, Grandpa, you threw away the wrong ticket. You had the winner and you threw it away. And I said, oh my God, where am I gonna look? And I remember that so, 
You said to me, I threw away the wrong ticket. Boy, did that bother me. I threw out a winner and I couldn't cash it. And so finally I got to ask him a question that I had been thinking about for a lot of years. What did you think when my mom told you that I'm transgender? Well, I was shocked, like, you know, oh my God. But then I got over it, I didn't really care. And in fact, while we're on that subject, I yelled at my wife yesterday. There was an article in the Thursday's Inquirer. I wanted you to have it so badly. There was a man that became a woman. She wrote like 30 books. I can't remember her name. But it raved about how great the books are and how she brought out how she felt while she was growing up and she didn't feel like she was actually a man. She didn't want to be a man. But anyway, it's in Thursday's paper. It's two pages about this woman. And she wrote all these books about what it's like to be transgender. But when I heard the news about you, I figured, if this is what makes you happy and this is what you want to do, I really don't care. And I don't know about how she felt about it. Whatever you are, I'm happy, and I'm glad you're happy. That's all I care about. It's all that counts. I'm not a judge. <laughs> what difference does it make? I just felt that, I can't use the word betrayal, but I felt that you and I grew up together, especially at Red Lion Road when we went to the pool every day or every other day or Sunday, whatever it was, <laughs> whatever relationship we had, it was you and me. And I always felt like you were a part of me. That's why, in fact, I wrote you a letter recently where I said, I recall how we were together all the time and so forth. But I, as far as you changing, it didn't matter to me. If, you want, if that's what you wanted to do, fine. And you two changed pronouns for me faster than almost anyone in the family, which I really appreciated. And so I just want to end with a little clip. Hopefully this will work. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> to go through what I went through with three cancers, and I survived. Yeah. And I'm still here. Yeah. People get the cancer, they die. But yeah. I don't know what's keeping me here, but whatever it is, I'm here. Yes. 88 years old. Wow. 88. We're both 88. 88. But uh, my, the biggest psychological part of me, believe it or not. Thank you. Excellent. Let's hear it again for Kelly. going to have to sit with it windowed for a minute because I'm tired of playing with that. Alrighty. Well, that, was, that was pretty great. See, the point of the show is I get people who are more talented than me and uh, <laughs> to come and tell stories and make funny jokes that are better than anything I could ever do. Don't look at me. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> that was amazing, though. Yeah, that was, that was great. It was fantastic. Uh, if you, by the way, if you've got a story, a song, a poem, anything really, uh, we are open to any submissions at all. So, uh, if you have a, like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. I've got the story about my aunt hiring a hitman or something like that. Josh, quit stealing my ideas. Yeah. And it's not, uh, well, never mind. All right. All right. Fair enough. Well, uh, you can send that idea specifically about the ant. You can send that to denverorbit at gmail.com. Uh, or if you go to denverorbit.com, we've got a website. 
There is a submission form there. I put it together in WordPress because I'm smart that way. And you can also submit your questions and I'll answer them right. advice-wise. Yeah. You, 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 trust, everybody, trust you have problems. She's good at solving them. Seriously. All right. Should we move along? I think we should move along. Yeah, let's move along because this banter is painful. <laughs> All righty. Uh, up next, we have Carl Christian Crumholz. Carl is a cartoonist whose Denver bootleg comic appears weekly in Westward. His latest comic is an introduction to alcohol from Tinto Press. And for close to five years, he's been documenting the lives of people in the city in his comic, 30 Miles of Crazy. And Carl is also a featured guest at Dink. So I just stole everybody who's going to Dink, and I, you know. That's so, how you do it. please welcome Carl Christian Crumples. All right. Thanks for everyone uh, coming out. Do you all, uh, does everyone have drinks? Because, yeah, this might get a little rough. So, uh, uh, also, can you see the screen? Because uh, I am a cartoonist, so part of my act is visual, which is awesome for podcasts. <laughs> so, um, all of these readings I'm doing tonight are true stories that have been related to me. So uh, this first piece is called Seeing the World. My wife died six months ago, cancer. We were together for years. One of the things we always spoke about was traveling the world, but we were always too busy with our lives and careers. We just never made the time. Then she got sick. It happened fast. During the long periods in the hospital, we would use the internet to tour the world. The streets of P Petersburg, Bangkok, the canals of Venice, and the alleys of Athens. Planning our great trip when she got better. We both knew that was never going to happen. Afterwards, I quit my job, sold most of my possessions, and just set off. It's been six months, and I'm seeing the world for both of us. All right, this next piece is called um, Sometimes That Is Just Enough. How did I get here? Why am I here? I don't know. Things just happen. Got out of the military. Honorable discharge. Found a job I hated, but paid the bills. Got married. It was good for a while. Real good. Had a house, a lawn, a dog, all that stuff. Things have a way of turning around when you least expect it. Within a couple years, the economy turned. I got laid off, money dried up, bills went unpaid. 
bad things started to happen. I lost my wife. Not like that, though. Still know where she is, though. She's just not with me. It's okay, though. We never really got along anyway. She got the dog, though. I miss him. So, uh, things just happen. And I wound up on the street. Do I want to be on the street? Hell no. It's tough out here. People just need to survive. And there are things you never realize you can do, have to do, each day just to get by. Dark things, down alleyways. It's not all bad, though. You learn to appreciate the small things, the quieter moments. A cigarette, some change, a place to crash off the street, even for just one night. A beer. <laughs> no matter how shitty it is, it's still a beer. And sometimes that is just enough. It's tough out here. All right, um, this is a fun one. <laughs> this one's called The Paint Liquor. And utterly true. All these stories are utterly true. Everyone has their weird thing. Everyone. It's that one thing that may be odd and hard to explain. There's something inside that you, inside, and you simply have to do it. I get a thrill from licking paintings. <laughs> Oils, acrylics, artwork, masterpieces. I've done so since I was a child. Maybe it was the colors, but I could just not help myself. There was a free museum in St. Louis where I grew up. When I was alone and no one was looking, simply give the canvas a quick lick. <laughs> I've been doing it for years. Monet, Renoir, <laughs> Matisse, Degas, Latour, Lichtenstein, Seurat, Picasso, Van Gogh. I've licked them all. <laughs> I was like the Dalai Lama and felt like I was just absorbing the power of the piece. In Memphis, I saw the restored carriage of Catherine the Great. I licked that one a lot. I was even able to lick a Frida Kahlo, though that one was hard to get away with. I just can't explain it. It's just what I do. I'm married now. My, my husband does not understand any of this and won't let me do it anymore. Cezanne always tasted the best. Next one is called um, Wes's story. Again, an utterly true story. So vaginas. Nope, not a fan. 
I don't even have a clue on what to do with them. And since my mom had a C-section, I've never even been through one. <laughs> I've only had to deal with one during my awkward early teenage fumbling years. And even then I said to myself, nope, not for me. So yeah, I knew I was different at a young age. It wasn't even a sexual feeling. I just wasn't interested in girls and wanted to be around the other boys. I was around 14 years old when I finally realized that I was gay. I came out to my mom soon after, and she didn't take it well. You see, this was back in the mid-80s when things were incredibly different. My country club family didn't know what to do with me. It wasn't that she was ashamed of who I was, no. It was merely more of the scandal of what would the neighbors think. Of course, telling my dad was right out of the question. He may have always known, but I didn't tell him until he was close to death. By that point, I really wasn't going to kill him then. <laughs> so that was that. My first experience, well, it was shortly after I talked to my mom. I was still quite young and I was on the swim team. I met an older man in the gym steam room, and he had a hotel room. Afterwards, while he was cleaning up, I got the hell out of there. Back then, there were very few gay bars or clubs, especially where I grew up. So how did you meet others? Well, actually, you met others late at night in the park bushes. That's just how it was done. It was dangerous, and I was very lucky. You had no clue who you may be with, and there were always predators. There was always a risk of getting beat up or worse. You see, what you straight boys don't seem to realize is that sex is personal. <laughs> if you're going to have something put inside your body, it's personal. It's not just about getting some and getting off. You should try to have it done to yourself sometimes just to experience the other half of it. <laughs> also, try to clean up a bit more downtown. <laughs> As a gay man, we play around down there all the time. So we always keep it clean and ready. You straight boys, not so much. <laughs> Found it. <laughs> now I'm older. I live in the city. I've been with my partner for nine years, married for seven. We met at the Eagle. Yeah, gay culture has changed. Social media has brought us together online and kind of divided us in real life. I can get laid within moments now and not even need a flashlight to go irky-lurky in the bushes. <laughs> I kind of miss the cruising culture, the hunt of wandering around the park for hours looking for a blowjob. <laughs> now, of course, there's always an app for that. <laughs> See? Someone wants to hook up, and he's right around the corner. 
in the clubs back then, it was always a party with the strongest drinks. I once saw Grace Jones walk into a club, hitch up her skirt, and pee into a fountain. <laughs> I thought it was amazing. I'm sure people nowadays would just tisk find it all so scandalous. <laughs> I miss being a subculture. <laughs> all right. This next one is called The Old Lions. I've always been here. It's in my blood. The place has been in my family for generations. My grandfather started it before Prohibition, and then it's also said during that incre incredibly messed up time. Of course, it made him a lot of money, which he later gambled away. Except the bar, that he kept. It then passed to my mother, that stubborn old broad. She grew up here with all the drunks, assholes and vagrants, she learned not to take shit from anyone. Everyone respected her. They sought her out, asked her for advice or for a favor. Holding court by the taps, she was pretty much the mayor of the old neighborhood. There was never a lot of money flowing through here. People were poor and desperate. That was just the way of things, but mom made sure that everyone was always welcome here. She hosted beef and beers once a month, usually to raise cash to help someone out. She had a big heart. Everyone appreciated her. They're using a bench in the park with her name on it. I learned a lot from mom. She ruled over this place for 40 years. Then it passed to me. The regulars still come and go every couple years. People move on, neighborhoods change. And I'm still here. I'm always here. The old neighborhood of my grandfather, mother, and my youth is gone. The old dilapidated place is suddenly trendy. The buildings don't seem right anymore. The broken facades have been replaced by something cheap, clean, and new. Seeming more like a replica, a Disney-fied version of the past. The simple beer and a shot have been replaced by craft cocktails, mojitos, and all-natural bitters. <laughs> all the familiar faces I've known have changed to ones I don't understand. And it sends a shiver down my spine. The old lions are gone, replaced by a younger breed. People who come in just don't talk anymore. They order their drinks and they just stare slack-jawed at their doohickey device, not even trying to notice anyone around them. A slick snake oil salesman crawled in here race recently wanting to buy my, my family's place. He wants to open something called a gastropub. <laughs> I have no clue what that is. But I'm starting to feel like a stranger in my own home. 
God, forgive me, but I'm thinking about it. I'm the last of my line. No children, just never had the time. What will happen to my family's place when I'm gone? I don't even know how to make a mojito. Okay, um, this next one's called Sweet Caroline, and it's a bit of an ode to uh, Colfax. I'm sure you all know who Colfax is. <laughs> Let me tell you about Sweet Caroline. I have to, since she's not around anymore to tell you herself. What's her real name? I don't know. Never did find out. I just always referred to her as Sweet Caroline, just like the song. Let me be utterly blunt. She had a lot of problems. Yeah, she was a prostitute. That's probably the nicest name for what she did. There were a lot more like her in the neighborhood before the new money started coming in. She was a character. We used to see her from the bar patio across the street from the corner she worked. Smoking, wearing too tight clothes, showing off the wares. Everyone knew her. We used to applaud and sing that damn Neil Diamond song when we saw her getting into a John's car. Yeah, we were drunk and stupid. Looking back, like all of us, she was just trying to get by. Then, as years went by, I got to know her better. Not, not well, mind you. She was just another person I would regularly see on the street. She would bum cigarettes off me. I even bought her a drink once. And she told me about herself. Of course, it was nothing glamorous at all. She was a from a family of religious zealots somewhere in the Midwest. She was rebellious and didn't get along. And so like many in her situation, she ran away and found herself in the city. She was young and things didn't go well. Yeah, there was always a place to crash and drugs made it easier to deal with the days. But because of her youth, she really wasn't skilled at anything. She danced in the clubs downtown for a bit. The money was easy, but it never lasted. She found herself on the street, hardened herself and got by with a few bucks on a time. It was a difficult life. She liked the music of Van Morrison and could easily drink me under the table. Then months passed and I had not seen her for some time. I was curious, the neighborhood was changing. I guess I was looking for a glimpse of that old space it used to be. She died. I don't know how, but she was gone. A buddy told me. Yeah, her name was Caroline. Thank you. All right, I have a, a 
a dark secret that I'm originally from Philadelphia. I forgot that Kelly and I are originally both from Philadelphia. So this is a story that uh, was told to me by um, an old friend of mine that I hadn't seen in like 25 years in Philadelphia. It's called 50 Years Later. Yeah, this is my neighborhood. I know every brick, door, and family, and storefront. I grew up here. I played stickball and hockey in the street before my door. In the summer, a crowd of us would open up the hydrant on the corner as some sort of relief from the scorching heat. Neighborhood never put on any airs because there was never any reason to. You see, your neighborhood before the bodegas and delis, you'd see, ugh, screwed that up. You see your neighbors in the, you see your neighbors in the bodegas and delis on the corner, smile, say hello, ask about the kids. We all went to school and grew up together. Over years, little has changed. My parents left me this place. It's a bit run down, worn from the years, from being a home. It's all I have left of them. Yeah, I've lived here for well over 50 years. And let me tell you, I am sick to death of the place. <laughs> sure, I can move, but this is my place, my investment. Yeah, I know the way of the world. Things are changing in the area. The city's getting too expensive. All the poor hipster kids are moving further out, from, further out to the warehouses and the old neighborhood to continue their raves and lifestyle cheaply. You know what that means? Money! <laughs> These kids have disposable incomes. I see what's happening. I'm watching it crawl up Frankfurt Avenue. The old blue-collar neighborhoods are being flipped. All the old packies and bodegas are suddenly cafe, galleries, and sushi restaurants. Used to be happy with just a cheesesteak. Who the hell eats raw fish? These kids. <laughs> You want final records? I got a basement full of that crap. <laughs> you want fancy tacos? I'll go out and get the cilantro, whatever the hell that is. <laughs> I'm waiting for all this mon modernization to come closer to my block. Yeah, it'll eventually happen. And I wanna cash out. <laughs> Think of putting a hot yoga sign in my window to speed things up. <laughs> That'll bring them in. They just can't resist it. Come on, focus calling me. All right. um, as I mentioned, um, all these stories are true stories. This next story um, is a story that I, uh, uh, I illustrated and put down from women I know that were around me in a bar talking about what's going on in modern culture. And as a straight white man, I feel like I can't tell their story. <laughs> They're actually in the audience, so I want them to tell their own story. So please welcome Kelly and Maya. Yeah, I'm a woman, and I don't hate men. 
But here's the thing. Do you want women to like you to go out on a date with you? Here's how you do it. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> yeah. But there's another part as well. If a woman says no to you, understand it's no. There's that thing with guys that no secretly somehow means yes. That if they only say something special in the right magic way, a woman will suddenly open up like Alibaba's magic cave. Why do you guys keep throwing themselves against that wall if she's just not that into you? That sort of thinking makes everything about you. She's not a person, just an object of desire to be caught. Her feelings don't matter. Just getting her and somehow winning for you. Men are raised to always go out and win the princess. Women are raised to make nice and think about others' well-beings, that we need to de-escalate de any sort of bad situation. Then some guy comes around and starts to pressure you for a date, and sometimes it's easier to say yes than to be stalked and killed. Men don't seem to realize this unsaid threat in their words. Let's face it, any man can literally overpower me. Men seem to think that persistence is romance, to just get another notch in whatever they put notches in. No, it's stalking and it's downright creepy. When I was a child, a boy used to tackle me and hold me down. And it wasn't sexual at all, we were way too young for that. However, all the adults just waved it away saying that he simply liked me. At that age, I was already forced to see myself as his pacifier. As long as he pressed me down to the ground, he wasn't hurting anyone else. That taught me to normalize this behavior and take one for the team. Everything is male dominated. If I don't let a guy have his way with me, I must hate him. As a woman, I'm seen either as a slut or a tease. Why don't you just deal with me as a person? The idea that sex, the idea of sex is that we both enjoy ourselves. If you're just into yourself, having a good time, you don't need me. Just jerk off at home and let me get on with my day. Why would you even want to have sex with a woman that you have to grind down? Because let me tell you, she's not going to be turned around by your mediocre dicking. And then suddenly start thinking, yep, he's the one for me. How many women have been raped, abused, or harassed? All of us. Then there's a casual misogyny in the culture. Everyone is honey or sugar or sweet cheeks. The idea that a woman just doesn't know as much as a man, that even a young man should explain things to an older woman. It's not control, it's agency. Control views us as equals. Agency views us as dolls, things to play with. Look, it's not a game. It's not black and white. It's not zero sum, and I'm not your caretaker. We don't hate men, but just don't be an asshole. I have zero fucks left to give. That's it. Our little club, the Zero Fucks Left to Give Club. Thank you, Maya, Kelly, and Elise. <laughs> All right, this is my last one. 
Um, hopefully, um, everyone can learn something from this one. <laughs> this last one's called Perseverance. The city on the hill, old town, the hub, Boston. I lived here for many years and still visit often. I still, still consider it my home. This is where I went after I left Philly. This is somewhere that I chose. Something here has always spoke to me. Could be the history, could be the people, the neighborhood, the character, or the simple fact it wasn't Philly. <laughs> it was my home. And I think much of it had to do with living here on my own. Back then I was living in an old converted piano factory in the South End. I would walk through the neighborhood, lost my thoughts, wondering what was I gonna do? What was my next step? Where do I go from here? At the time I had a job in publishing. That, you know, that was going well, I paid the bills, but it was just something that I did. Did I want to stay here? Was there even a future? Or should I continue with my artwork? Should I give it up or dedicate myself more fully to it? Then there was a woman across the country that I'd recently met and I was developing feelings for. What about her? Was I willing to move to a different time zone just to be with her? All of this was going through my head for months. I love this city, but I was wondering if I should drop everything and take a chance and move away. My feet always led me through the South End, down Worcester Street. Looking up, I find the, find the same doorway. Number 87, Perseverance. That simple inscription on the transom window above the door always confused me. It's an old neighborhood. How long has it been there? Why was it there? Who would name and address that? For months, I would continue to walk by and I would see that simple word shining in the darkness and smile. I stopped asking mental questions and just accepted it. Two years later, I moved to Denver to explore the relationship with the strange woman I've fallen for. I left the publishing industry and I dedicated myself fully to my artwork. But I still make it back to Boston, often, always wondering if I should move back and start a new chapter. In those times, I find myself back in the South End, walking down Worcester Street, look up at that same doorway and look at that word, and I'm still trying. Thank you. Excellent. That was great. Let's hear it again for Carl and, of course, everybody else who was up here as well. Although, I realized something. Philly. Kelly's from Philly. Bonnie's from Pittsburgh. We've been cheated. There's no Denver people here. This is a crock. Denver orbit my ass. Oh, man. East Coast orbit? It's Pennsylvania orbit, I guess. So, vaginas. Vaginas. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. I've been wanting to say that ever since he read that comic. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah. And there were comics all over the floor. Yeah. And they're gone now. It's genius to have a cartoonist on a podcast. Everyone who hears this is going to be like, I've got to see this, this, these comics right now. Yeah. They're going to run out, grab a Westward. And yeah. they won't be disappointed. Excellent. Well, uh, I think that's going to bring us to the end. My friend Bonnie here. Bonnie uh, and I used to pedicab together, actually, on the streets of Denver. Um, that's how I know her. And we would have been out tonight. It's opening day. We would have been out there yeah, make, trying to make money, freezing our asses off. No, I'd rather be out there right now. Uh, uh, Bonnie would have made like 400 I would have made like 200 and gotten bored and gone home early <laughs> I was really really good at it anyway uh, let's see make sure everything sounds good and uh, I'll let you take it from here Oh, wait, you have an intro. I didn't even read that. What a fucking terrible host I am. All right. Bonnie Wiener was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and picked up the <laughs> banjo. After moving to Denver in 1995, she has played in different local bands, though she currently performs only as a solo act. She enjoys simple, dynamic roles and some of the familiar roots and country sounds that the banjo can highlight. She aims to write a good song without losing her individual voice and attitude. She is currently recording an EP at Module Overload Studio, which will be available soon on her Bandcamp page. Her next show is Thursday, uh, May 10th, at the Skylark Lounge. So excited. Thank you so much, Josh. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm start with, uh, well, I guess we should see if that sounds okay. Uh, start with a song about taking my grandma gambling. I'm going to start with that. All right. <laughs> Go get your numbers, we'll play for real If we stay home we might just watch TV But to that when should I see you Smile in the truck without the radio Could use a mile so come on Let's get in Roll the windows down and turn it on and we'll drive and we'll sing like we are the radio. Hey, where'd you learn those tunes? She learned them off the radio. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, we'll always gamble almost always lose but it's not about that it's about the dream you had the night before well i want to learn more about what and why you play you say every dream has a reason some of mine bring luck well we'll see i just want to drive and sing who needs a microphone when you just join in just want to drive and sing Feel the air fast on my skin. Well, it's no good time now for numbers. The future's grim. Sure, hope skins are tight. All the rest is so much despair. Well, when they get to that next century, I hope they still have this kind of fun like you and me when we drive and we sing like we are the radio. Hey, where'd you learn those 
tune she learned them off already. Oh, oh, oh. a jerk but at the time all that I could see was that that man who grabbed me to dance looked like he just rode out of bed he was a mess in between his all shoulders and no feet I'm straining my neck and looking down trying not to see pajama top man well, he didn't ask me to dance. He just grabbed me by the hand. Pajama top, man. Well, I've been working in the grime all day. But I went home, got cleaned up. See, I'm ready to start my real day. Ooh, yeah, I'm going out to hear a couple of honky-tonk bands as I was getting ready. I wondered, will I dance? Pajama top man. Pajama top man. Will I ever see you up? Again, pajama top man, and yet I feel a shame because I left him standing there. I hope I didn't hurt his feelings. Something tells me that he doesn't care. Ooh, yeah, well. Maybe I'm the fool because I'm the one leaning alone against the wall still. That's like the worst going out country dancing shirt I ever saw. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is a true story. Pajama top man. Pajama top man. He just grabbed me by the hand. Pajama top, man. Well, go ahead and ask me next time, but it does depend. Pajama top. Make up your own mind, and if you do, and they made up for you, yeah, it's called the big curse. That big old curse. 
life when they got together but they didn't want another and they had to drive a long way across state line I still don't know why that's not the Someone got shot in the back, it was a man, and he's blacking someone. Made it up for him. On the news, they said it was a cop. Again, sounds like a curse. And that kid, he's like 19 years old. Took him six minutes, 20 seconds to kill 17 people. Yeah, he works for the big curse. That big old curse. But curses aren't made of steel. 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 If you don't make up your own mind and if you do and made up for you yeah it's called the big curse that big old curse well civilian attacks curses are made of steel curses are made of steel up your own mind and if you do uh, I'll play one more song thank you for listening to me come see me at the Skylark on May 10th
listen to me. Thank you, Bonnie. Bonnie Weimer, everybody. It's fantastic. Lots of true stories from Eastern lands. Yeah, yeah, true stories from Eastern lands. That's about, that's about it, yeah. Lots of talent. Uh, I haven't got any more painful banter left. Do you? Um, you know what? I thought of all my painful banter, and then I pretty much rejected it all, so no. No. All right. Excellent. Uh, you know what? If you want to get a hold of Denver Orbit, it's denverorbit at gmail.com. You can see... Did I turn the fucking... Yes, I did. No. <laughs> I guess I really like that reverb. Can I have some reverb? I mean, I'm sitting here like in the cold. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I want some reverb. Yeah. Reverb. That's how it goes. That's, we're inside a giant submarine. I don't know. The best podcast. It's all, it's all falling apart. It's Sorry. falling apart. Sorry. The whole podcast is coming apart at the seams. It's bound to happen. I'm sorry. You've seen the last show of Denver Orbit tonight. That's it. We're just <laughs> never going to do this again. It's just a mess. Okay. All right. So the second best podcast in Denver is now the best. The, the last. The last best. The last Westward's going to come and take that award right the fuck away. They're going to be like... <laughs> Denver's best? Ooh, did we say that? It was a little premature. Pennsylvania's best? Yes. That's what it is. That's what it is. Excellent. Uh, there are more stories, interviews, songs, music, all that at denverorbit.com. We're on uh, the old trusty old iTunes. You can uh, you know just look for Denver Orbit and just about any... I don't know, any podcast app you choose. I don't have a whole lot more to say. I've been Josh Madison. Mary McHugh. And that's it. That's it for the show. Thanks, Thank everybody. you for coming out. Woo!